This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, and you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to the 480th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight we discuss making lore matter in your tabletop role-playing games, but first, a word from our sponsor. King's Haven Bacon. Our bacon is fire elemental served for just the right crisp. When you want bacon, you want King's Haven Bacon. Why is Moloch the Emulator sponsoring us? The God of Fire pays well. Plus he's a god and he's relevant to the Lord of Setting. That's a good point. Okay, with that, my name is Chris. My name is Jerry. And I am old man Logan. Hey, what's up everybody? Welcome All back right. to the show. Yeah, we're here. We are Sansville tonight. Bill is dealing with some gastrointestinal issues. Phil <laughs> is prepping for a colonoscopy. Yeah, that's true. It's not just some random event. No, no, this is a planned strategic thing. A planned strategic gastrointestinal issue? Yeah. And it's a theme. It's going to be a recurring theme. We'll, we'll just leave it at that for now. Is it really? Oh, that's right. Because everybody else here is going to have to deal with that. That is correct. Yes. On that note, <laughs> we should do the temperature check. So how are you? I, I'm feeling okay. <laughs> I, I was tired today again, which is a recurring theme lately. But other than that, uh, mentally and physically, not really not that bad. Some ice on my back earlier today. My back was a little sore. Cranky back suck. Cranky suck. back, which again, old. So, But other than that, I'm good. Jerry, how are you feeling? Pretty good. The weather last night kind of kicked in my allergies a little bit. So if I'm a little nasally today, you guys know it's just for my allergies. Other than that, I'm firing on our cylinders. This is the week that I teach um, our 30-hour course. So I am basically on all day long. So I've been teaching all day and talking to people and instructing them. So this is kind of old hat now. and uh, But it's good because it means the days go by fast and it's very energetic. And this week we have a really good class of people that are all having a good time chatting and asking me good questions. So that's me. Chris? I'm fine. It's just normal stuff for me. Just exercising. Went away from the weekend. It was nice to get out of town for a while. Went to a tea house. That was cool. Felt really good just to order pots of tea in a tea house. There was a party going on there. I'll talk about it later. I was a little down for a day. Basically slept for like 12 hours. Then I played video games for a while. Man, I felt better. Then I went to work and killed myself. It, it was in a good way. It wasn't in a bad way. So that's me. I guess we should move on to the main content of this week's episode. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Let's talk about lore. Lore is the backstory to your setting. You can have zero lore or a novel worth of this stuff, but no player is going to care unless it comes into the play of the game. So how do we get players to care about our lore? Here's six tips to accomplish this, starting with making your lore relevant to your game session. So to make lore of your setting relevant to your game, it needs to be part of your adventures. There are a number of ways you can do this. One is to use the elements of your game as decorations for your environments. Statues or effigies the gods, books about important historical events, base reliefs of epic battles, tapestries of important people in important places, taking part in important moments of important import. Yeah, I got that right. You did? Cool. This puts part of the lore into the players' minds and helps with our next tip. But before we get to that tip, another way to make lore relevant is to make it into plot points in your adventure. Make some of your adversaries, the things that are banes or boons of the characters, some important moments of play, and the reasons that are important related to your lore. These memorable moments help players connect to the lore of the game. Chris, why don't we look at an example? Sure. Let's say you have a cobalt den for the characters to raid. The heroes are trying to rescue a merchant caravan of people kidnapped by the aforementioned cobalts. As the characters explore the den, they find some iconography scrawled on the walls. 
a couple of small shrines, and a large rough statue of a hooded figure. These decorations are all in relation to the god of trickery the Cobalt's worship. So, when the characters finally find the caravan's worker, that victim has been prepared as a sacrifice to the god of trickery. Unfortunately, during the battle, the Cobalt's managed to sacrifice one of the merchants, and the Cobalt leader is transformed into a shadow-jumping, illusion-creating death monstrosity. The inclusion of decorations, iconography, rituals, and worship makes the trickery god a relevant part of the adventure. It becomes both declaration and plot points. This could be considered memorable on its own, which means we made this part of the adventure relevant to the game session. But if this is the only time the god of trickery shows up, then it'll be a footnote to the game at best and forgotten at worst. Fortunately, we've also established a foundation to build on, which allows us to move up to the second tip, repetition. Present, reinforce, repeat. This is our mantra for making lore relevant and a reference to a pretty good Tom Cruise movie. Our lore needs opportunities for repetition. I'm definitely not saying that you need to paint every building, NPC, and event with the lore brush. A few times per session will help your players remember your setting's lore. Plus, when a player hears about the same legend, myth, or epic story multiple times, they start to assume it has something to do with the ongoing game. Once they start thinking that, they'll never forget your lore. This helps with direction. Time for another example. All right, remember those adventurers who dealt with the kobolds? In their next adventure, they find themselves in a forgotten castle. They'd heard it had been destroyed, however, it's actually buried in a set of underground caverns. While exploring the castle and dealing with the undead found within its halls, they discover a temple area dedicated to two gods, one of light and one of shadows. I think you're the light god on the shadow god, or is it the other way around? Oh, I think I'm the shadow god. Okay, I'll be the light god. That's fine. Because the shadow god statue and the iconography associated with it are similar to the ones they found in the Cobalt Den. Now we have a coincidence, and players don't believe in coincidence. They like making connections and being clever. It makes them feel like they're smart, and in this case they are, because that statue represents the god of trickery. We'll get to that later, but until then we're moving on to our third tip, which is making the lore a part of the ongoing game. All right, Jerry, let's move on with the plot. Now that we've introduced some lore and gave it a petition or two to put it in the mind of the players, we can take that to the next step and make our established lore a bigger part of the ongoing game. We can have it play whatever role we want to, but instead of being background, set dressing, or something fun to deal with, it can also become a prominent part of the ongoing game. Our lore can become a major plot point, a possible antagonist, a wild card, an overhanging doom, a power that assists a player, or an android that we find in space. J- Jerry, that last lore doesn't really go with the others. Oh, I beg to differ. Lord from Star Trek was an antagonist and a major plot point of next generation storytelling at times. He sometimes caused events that were overhanging doom, sometimes assisted data, and functioned with the role of a wild card. He's an excellent example of Lord surrounding Dr. Singh and the androids of Star Trek universe, filling in many of the points we just talked about. You know what? You're right. My, 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 my bad. That's a very good example. Mind if I provide one in line with the examples we've been building on? All right. Sure thing. Okay. Let's go back to the heroes. In their third adventure, they find themselves involved with a bunch of doppelgangers who worship the god of trickery. The doppelgangers are impersonating members of a local thieves guild. They're doing this to make money, but that's just a side hustle and a front. Their true goal is to expand their people throughout the city. They wish to make the city of doppelgangers a city of deception. Okay, so maybe to achieve this goal, they've been performing a series of rituals. These rituals will allow them to turn members of the thieves guild, who have seen the advantages of being doppelgangers, into more of their kind. Eventually, the PCs discover what's happening and thwart their doppelgangers. But then they find the ritual sites and the rites the doppelgangers are using. And these are the same rituals the kobolds were using to change themselves into shadow monsters. Dun, dun, dun. Even the iconography is the same as the various statues of trickery. And even one of the shadow god in the forgotten castle that they just found. Because this god of trickery keeps appearing and causing the characters problems, 
they might start looking into who this God of Trickery is, why the iconography of the God of Trickery keeps appearing in places where trouble keeps showing up, and find out who worships the Trickery God and what those folks want. Now, the lore of this setting isn't just decoration anymore, or relevant to a single session, or an interesting callback to a previous adventure. The lore has become part of the ongoing game. Its presence has impacted events and caused the characters problems. It's something for the characters to go and deal with. Together, those three tips can make your settings lore pop off in your game over time. But there are other things we can do to get that lore into the players' heads even faster. Really? Yeah. Because the fourth tip is to make your lore actionable within your adventures. Ah, actionable lore does one or more of the following things. It creates new options for the players to pursue, provides the characters with some kind of mechanical bonus to overcome whatever obstacles that arise, or gives the players a shortcut around an obstacle they run into. Let's look at the previous situations our heroes were in. When dealing with the kobolds, some kind of history or knowledge check about the god of trickery and its rights could have informed the characters what would happen if a sacrificial ritual was completed, or gave them insight into how to counter the ritual so it couldn't be completed. Either situation would make the final part of the adventure easier to deal with, but the first option only provides information that can be used to prepare and manage the resources for the final encounter, while the second situation provides a new option and a potential shortcut around an obstacle. So, in the Forgotten Castle, dun, dun, dun. various shrines to the gods of light and shadow provide power, but only one character can be granted a boon per shrine. This makes exploring the castle easier, but then the character who takes on the shadow boon begins to hear whispers in their mind. The god of trickery and shadow now has a connection to that character and will start to communicate with them in dreams and eventually while they're awake. Aside from being a mechanical boon, this also provides a new option for the GM. They can lean on the effective DC and put difficult choices in front of them. And the player gets to role play the difficulties of influence of the god of trickery and shadow, making it fun for them. That's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't we jump back to the city of doppelgangers? So our characters, through a bit of study and research about the rights the doppelgangers are using, can discover a way to reverse the ritual on anyone who's undergone it. Unfortunately, they only have until the new moon when the effects will become permanent. This new option and shortcut makes dealing with the Thieves Guild much easier, since reversing the ritual on a member who's gone through it takes them out. That's way better than fighting the doppelganger mafia. I mean, who the heck wants to fight the doppelganger mafia? I do. You want to fight the doppelganger mafia? I always want to fight the mafia. Uh, but they're doppelgangers. You don't know who's who. Once you stab them, if they turn into doppelgangers, they're doppelgangers. Are you the doppelganger mafia? Let's move on. Yeah, okay. Let's move on. Uh-huh. You know nothing. <laughs> nothing. So, this also could be relevant to the character who used the Shadow Shrine in the Forgotten Castle. Really? Yeah. Being in close proximity to the ritual sites could start changing them in unforeseen ways. All of these examples provide ways to take actions that can help them with the problems they're facing or create their own problems. If they're not careful, of course. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they are all related to the setting's lore. In addition to being actionable, the lore is also relevant on a smaller scale, part of the game's plot, and provides repetition. 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 Now, we've looked into a number of ways to use lore as part of our campaigns to build connections between our adventures and as drama for our characters. So our fifth tip takes us back to the past by connecting the lore to the characters' backstories. This requires a bit more buy-in from the players, but finding some way to link your settings lore to past events and the characters' backgrounds can really help connect the settings' background to the players. You can do this with leading questions concerning your lore, finding connections to people, places, events, and things associated with the lore you'd like to highlight, family lineages, wartime units, memories lost to time, catastrophic events, hidden secrets, and magical packs are just a few of the ideas that come to mind. You'll know what makes sense to potentially tie the characters to the relevant lore of your setting. The important thing, and a thing that goes for all of these ideas, is you, as the GM, need to push on these ideas after your players have bought in and tied themselves to the lore of the setting. If you don't, it just doesn't work. Absolutely. So, 
back to our characters. Let's say one of them has a wizard who comes from a family of wizards. Their mother went missing when they were eight years old during a summoning ritual. The character was there watching when they should have been sleeping when a demonic entity was summoned. The wizard's older brother made a mistake when crafting their part of the magic circle, allowing the demon to get free. As the beast was banished by the brother, mother, and father, the monster managed to grab the mother, dragging her with it back into the void. Oh man, that sucks. Oh yeah. That's almost a tragic backstory, right? Close to it. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure. <laughs> now that we have a mother-grabbing demon in a backstory, we're going to connect it to the lore. First, we need to ask the player if the demon can be a shadow demon from the void dimension. They agree, and we're off to the races. Then, while in the Cobalt Den, the iconography the kobolds are using in their rituals is the same as the writing in the book the wizard's father was using to summon the demon that took mom. Connection! Yes. <laughs> in the Forgotten Castle at the Shadow Shrine, the wizard hears the mother's voice calling out for them. Oh, I know, it's so sad, right? The voice gives the hero the name of the demon that took her, also providing some hope that she's still alive somewhere. So that later, in the city of Doppelgangers, the wizard finds a spell that's a chance to open a portal to the shadow dimension. Now they can try to summon the demon that took their mother and possibly get her back. Making one connection and asking the player for one small alteration to their backstory allowed for all of this to happen. We just have to look for places to make those connections to our lore and the backstories of the characters. It really helps. Because once we find them, we follow some of the tips we've already put forward. Make the lore relevant. Make it part of the plot. Give it some repetition. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And make it actionable. When you do, you can get a nice secondary character plot that fits into the lore of the game, and the players will become more invested. Yes. This also leads in a smaller way to our sixth and final tip. We can just let the players help create the lore. We can let the players help create the lore. This is something we can keep as tight or loose a rein on as we want. Some players will be more interested in exploring our worlds and discovering their depths themselves, but other players love the opportunity to help create things within the game world, including the backgrounds of cities, their families, and anything else we may want to leave as space for the players to fill in. This can create buy-in from the players, as they have a hand in creating that part of the world, and when it comes up, the GM can have the player created that part of the lore, let the group know what might be important. Remember, when you GM, you deserve a break now and again too, so let them do some of the creative work. Let's get to an example. When we sat down to session zero, Ange said, I'd like my character to worship some kind of god of darkness, a god whose doctrine includes subterfuge, shadows, and misdirection to further their religion's goals. Sean added into that asking, how about if there was a civilization of doppelgangers who worshipped that god, you know, before the civilizations of the world existed? Yeah, says Brett. They could have built a kingdom of deception. That, that'd be pretty cool. Because of these lore tidbits the players dropped in session zero, the GM decides to make Ange's god the primary antagonist of the game. They figure that'll make for some interesting drama at some point, and they then decide that the descendants of that doppelganger civilization are the trickery god's primary force in the setting. They carry out his will and further his plans. While jotting down notes for the Forgotten Castle in the second adventure, the GM figures this is a former castle of the doppelganger civilization and then makes the city of doppelganger story about rebuilding the doppelganger civilization with the god of trickery's assistance. All the GM did was take the player's ideas and weave them into the plot. These are the kind of games that can arise out of letting your players get in on making the lore. You just take the parts the players made and innovate on them. This makes the players feel like they contributed to building out the lore of the setting and provides another way to connect them to the game. And many players will become much more involved in any lore that they helped create. There are six tips on making lore matter to your players. Before we move on, Bob, tell us about another show on the Mr. to Mark Network. So tonight we're going to talk about Mastering Dungeons. I love Mastering Dungeons. Mastering Dungeons is great. Mm-hmm. RPG veterans and game designers Teos Abadia He's and back. Sean Merwin mm-hmm. look at the game and the hobby of D&D from a variety of viewpoints. Reporting the news, understanding the business, reviewing the products, and illuminating the design. Whether you're a fan, a player, a DM, or a designer, Sean and Teos cover topics of interest to you. I don't know when this episode comes out compared to their episodes, but 
Tails was in Europe for a while and he came back and talked about his trip. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a pretty good episode to listen to right there. Cool. cool. All right. Uh, I'd like to have a more freeform conversation about the, the six points of lore that we talked mm-hmm. about. Relevance, Absolutely. repetition, plot yeah. points. Oh, repetition, repetition, repetition. <laughs> Actionable lore, past connections, and player-created lore. We're playing a bunch of games these days mm-hmm. that, that will do this really well for us. Like we're playing yeah. Ox. Ox has lore that we made in a lot of yep. ways. And then Phil came up with stuff too. Yeah. Yep. And the Archmage's Legacy, which is the, can- the D&D campaign the three mm-hmm. of us are playing together, has also a ton of lore that was um, made by me and player-created because mm-hmm. I wanted to include the players. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about Ox first. Yeah. About how how he's weaved the lore and on the stuff that we've put together into the game. So, for, for instance, your character is a, initially, before we found out about my character, Bob, is a um, a creation of... The builders, which are like the ancient race that existed yes, thousands the, of years the, ago. The, the builders, the progenitors, uh, the, you can call them a lot of different things. They have an actual name in the in the lore that I can't honestly remember. The Eldati. The Eldati. For mm. some reason, that name just keeps escaping me every week. But the purpose of this discussion, they're the ancient ones in your any epic fantasy game that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yes, exactly. But their stuff is laying all over the place. But that was a, that was a conscious choice on my part when we were going through character creation. I wanted to do something a little different than just be like, you know stock alien from planet x it's cool because all of us did that <laughs> essentially we all did but, we all did um, that but what i what i thought would be interesting was we have this lore of this ancient race this group of people the civilization mm-hmm. that had this super tech and they had these ships and these ships had ais in them and they would run around and they would do shit yep and i said well if they have ais running the ship the ai at some point is going to need some physical help yes so i thought what if they genetically created a species of helpers that were specifically designed to work on the ships and be this assistance when, when assistance was necessary? I, I, yeah, totally. So I created a kind of a primate-like thing based off of a sloth that all four limbs end in hands with, you know, opposable thumbs mm-hmm. and the tail is prehensile so they can do whatever they want with, with whatever limbs they have and they can swing from the ceilings and stuff what, what is the term when you have the use of five different limbs it's not ambidextrous that's two that's left yeah, and right sure like you're quad dexterous polydextrous polydextrous, polydextrous. sure i'm polydextrous okay it's um, not the first time it's come up in role-playing games nah. there you go so yeah i thought that would be interesting and phil was like yeah that's awesome let's go with that so we we created that as my as my character's species genetically engineered specifically to do a task for the builders Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah i think that he's done a great job of making that particular point like very relevant it's been repeated a bunch of times whenever we enter builder tech there is like handholds it's like these things are made for bob's character yes because they are uh, it's been there constantly and because uh bob's character's surrogate brother like another member of his race that was found along with bob's character became a an antagonist in our games Mm -hmm. it was also a plot point that was relevant and he's just done a great job of repeating it making it relevant and making it a plot point in our game it's been great it went from a off-camera rivalry to basically him being the sudden antagonist for like act 1.5 for this game Yep. yep all of a sudden the games shifted when uh, his brother got a hold of another ship similar to Ox. The uh, difference being that we had three geniuses and he had just him. Mm-hmm. So it's the another, lesser brother. The lesser brother. <laughs> it's another place in the game where film made the lore of the setting relevant because mm-hmm. there was a civil war in the past 
Now that could mean nothing to us at all, but because Betarum, that's that's Altharum's brother, that's Bob's character's brother, mm-hmm. stole the Nova, Nova ship, basically the other faction of the Civil War, and we're flying around on on a caretaker ship, which is the Eldadis, the the primary, the builder mm-hmm. races ship that was trying to solve whatever problem was on the other side of the Civil War. We're not in a Civil War like exactly, but that that history matters more to yep. us yes. because of the two different kinds of ships that exist, how they play up in the game. And because of what we've learned as we go along, picking up bits and pieces, the game started out with us feeling that the builders were these super benign entities that had created this ship to help us run around solving problems and saving worlds. And we began to find little hints that some of their motives might have been either I wouldn't say malicious, less altruistic, less than we altruistic, assume. that's yep. true. <laughs> and, and, and oftentimes kind of absentee. We came upon a planet that was only, that they were terraforming. If they just abandoned, so it was only half terraformed. And in addition to the photonic species that settled there later, there was actually like, there were some life forms on the planet that had never gotten a chance to evolve past a certain point because the planet was not fully terraformed. It was jumped up. And by not fully terraformed, we mean like there are chunks of mountain that are just wireframes waiting for somebody to put the mountain part onto them. It's it's like that scene from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have seen that movie where they're like rebuilding the earth? Yeah. But they didn't finish it. <laughs> like, like, like they got half done making it. I, I kind of pictured it like Tron. Oh yeah, like, that's, Tron, that's fair. You had like wireframes of things that weren't quite put together all yeah, the like way. The 3D printer ran out of the yeah. building <laughs> yeah. materials. Yeah. Yeah. We don't actually, uh, to, to be fair about the game, we don't actually know if they, they just abandoned it or if the Civil War thing that made them disappear 10,000 years ago hit them. And that's why it all just stopped. Yeah. But we'll figure it out. Yeah. That's part of, the, part of the fun of that game. Yep. And we started to find out that some of the things they were doing along the way, which I'll leave those for Phil to talk about when he comes back, while not malicious, definitely there are some things they're doing that make us rethink the motivations. Yeah. And now when we go to planets to, to save them, we're looking at them through a totally different uh, viewpoint. Yeah, it's uh, another thing where the lore has come to play a, a pretty yeah, over and over, over again of the game, like how, how its its relevance has shifted over the course of time. Yeah. Now, they didn't only do that, though. He also took your character, Tam, your background, yep. who has kind of a tragic backstory and is involved with a bunch of terrorists who did some horrible things. The Omega Demolitionists. Yep. Who eventually found out were tricked by a Batarum into being part of his entourage. Man, I hate those guys, though. <laughs> yeah. I really do. And so now we've got two different plots that are overlapping. And because we know what their motivations were, which are not the same as Betarum's. No. It makes them even more dangerous now that they've got, now once they had access to builder technology. They seem pretty useless to me, actually. Like, they don't, they don't <laughs> seem to be much of a threat out in space. I feel like Betarum just, like, duped them. Well, I think part of the thing is because of the way Phil set up the game, which is that this is a game where there's no combat. There's literally no mechanic in this game for combat. And so a group of terrorists who run around doing big terrorist type things because we can always overcome them by being just smarter than they are and better than they are. In reality, we just can't punch or shoot things. We can do a lot of stuff to like yeah. cause yeah. damage if we wanted to, but we don't because that's not our that's not the game, right? Yeah. Like that's what we agreed on. Plus, Gree is more handsome than they are. That's okay. That's true. The player created lore part. I want to put that, point that out because Alpharum's character, Bob, did a lot of that. And that made a lot of stuff happen in the game. Uh, I helped a little bit with that because I wanted to be uh, essentially a human because I don't like playing aliens. I never, I don't even play elves in D&D. I like just playing human beings. It's okay. The, the pieces that Bob made became really huge parts of the game that Phil just took and ran with, which we talked about that as point six. So it's yeah. another really cool mm-hmm. thing. And plus point five, the past connections thing, the past connections thing for me with the Omega Demolitionist. Mm-hmm. But like, this is a game that is just built around in a lot of ways, the lore that Phil brought to the table and that we brought to, brought to the table. Like most of the main plot points are about that. Mm-hmm. He leans heavily on all of them. We had um, our third big mission was basically trying to 
help repopulate a, a gigafauna kaiju type thing, yeah. which got started because my character, who's a anthrobiologist, had left their basically all their students to run a run a mission while they were out running around with ox. And we got called by them to come back in and help them. And so the easy way to get us to the next location was for Phil to have somebody from my past just give us a call and say, hey, this looks odd. Have you ever seen this? And he dropped one or two little hints that this was more than, more than just a, a minor problem. And we came in. And so yeah. it was easy to get us involved right from the get-go. And to give us an idea which side of that situation we were supposed to be on. Mm-hmm. Because there were lots of different moving parts, lots of different political situations going on. But because he had um, my students call me in, I do that whatever side they were on, that's where we should start moving with. And Phil leans on that a lot and makes it easy for us to figure out, here's what you should be doing, or at least here are the people you can trust. Yeah. And if for you folks at home that are, that are listening or watching this, past connections, relevance, plot yep. points, yep. like those three things yep. are what we're talking about right mm-hmm. there. That's, that's, that's the, uh, the example that is being dropped. I'd like to move on to the Archmage's legacy. And yes. I want to talk mostly about Alvar because that's Bob's characters. There's oh, yeah. going to be a running theme here, apparently, with Bob, Bob playing <laughs> characters. Yes. He wanted to be a Tiefling and wanted to be a character that was very unique in the setting. Um, it wasn't so much in, that I wanted in, to be an outsider, unique, but I, I wanted to play on the outsider. Aspect. Yeah. I said, OK, Tieflings are generally not looked upon favorably because of their appearance, mainly. And then, you know, depending on how the species is portrayed, they could be, you know, they could be devil worshiping bad guys. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, here's an interesting play on this. Let's say that we are actually relatively decent, hardworking people that just want to, you know, do their thing, live their life. But their appearance makes them kind of sketchy when you first meet them. Mm-hmm. And then there turns out that there's a splinter group that uh, that broke off. That's a bunch of warlocks that actually do worship a fire demon kind of thing and just run around blowing shit up because they like to do it. They worship the the evil aspect of the fire god. Yeah. Whereas the rest of us, you know, the fire god Moloch, the immolator, Mm -hmm. um, he's the god of of life and And light and earth and home. He's also the god of destruction. And and like, so they played up on the destruction side of it. Whereas most of the, of the people of the kingdom of Alvar are, you know, they worship the more, down-to-earth aspects of that particular deed. We went back and forth about the people too, like who they were, where they came, where they are now, yeah. how they got there, yeah. and how that built up their society. So like they live up in the mountains, but that's not where they're from. They were basically run out of their homeland a few times. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They're you know, like desert-dwelling people that were chased out of their homeland, displaced. So they said, okay, fine, we'll find another place to live. As long as we can, you know, subside, subsist, you know, make food and clothing and whatever. So they settled in the mountains and that was good for a while. And then the one day we were talking about what was going to happen. And I'm like thinking to myself, you know, if they're in the mountains, what kind of commerce, what's their primary like export if they. Yeah, we started talking, we started having all those conversations. I looked into it and I said, okay, you know, your typical mountain type stuff, goats, herding, um, textiles because of, of wool from the goats. And I'm like, ah, here we go. So they herd goats. They use the, uh, the goats, um, much like, uh, an indigenous tribe. They mm-hmm. use every part of the goat that they can. Mm-hmm. So they use the, uh, the, the wool for textiles. They use the milk to make goat cheese. They use the meat to make really kick-ass goat barbecue. Mm-hmm. Like I just came up with all of these things based on that one thing. Like, oh, was goats fun. would be in the mountains. It was goat barbecue that really, like, I'm like, I'm sold. Still sold me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's that's a thing now. Goat barbecue yeah. plus the textile thing. We we, yeah. we we really played that up. Like yeah. they, that's what their their primary export is. And it all came out of the idea that 
they were displaced into the mountains. Like mm-hmm. it's just their commerce emerged from the fact that the lore pushed them to a certain place yeah. yep. and the kind of people that they are, which is hardworking salt of the earth folks that been, had a rough life because of that. They didn't fall to destructive ways. They went the other way and be, became good people mm-hmm. regardless yeah. of their hardships. They have a nurturing society that was interesting to interact with because they had a different view than the city that we'd been dealing with. Their view of sales and capitalism. Well, and yeah, that's what I want to get into yeah. because this was all background material for the most mm-hmm. part. Like there were letters being sent to Bob's character from his sister every now and again, hinting at a, at a coming threat. And finally, eight sessions in, the party went to Alvar. Now, once they show up in Alvar, like I had ideas for the city. I knew kind of what I was doing with it. But I'm like, all right, Bob, this is your homeland. Come an hour early and let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. And we did like, what is the city like? Because he showed up and we didn't do it like it's like a conversation between a uh, player and GM. We did it in character mm-hmm. and as a conversation between player and GM, yep. like Bob's character, McCander, went back there. And mm-hmm. as he was going through the city, he was Bob as a player was getting introduced to the city. Candor had already been there, the character, but it yeah. was really fun to describe <laughs> those things and, and bounce ideas off of Bob for what felt right and felt good and mm-hmm. was part of the actual like lore and why these things existed in, in, the, in yeah. the place. Chris had some ideas that had, had, had looked up some images and said, mm-hmm. you know, what if your mountain home looks like this? And he had some images of different structures mm-hmm. in, in the mountainous area and stuff. And they all look very intriguing and interesting and it felt like in the moment, like, like that looks like something that these people would build when they were put into the mountains and told, go survive there. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, well, let's do it. And then as he's taking my character through the city and we're walking through and he's describing the different things, he's like, I felt like they would have this big bizarre market area. And I'm like, exactly. That is perfect. And we started going through and, and bouncing some things off mm-hmm. of each other about how are the stalls decorated, textiles is a big thing. So we've got a lot of different types of cloth and colors and different stuff like that. Yeah, because they're not exceptional stone workers. They decorate all of their stonework. Exactly. They're, they're good, but they're not dwarf, right? Like, yeah. They, they, so they're, it's pretty basic and rough, yeah, but then but, they decorate it with different types of cloth and color and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So, And it really started to take on a life of its own as we were walking through for that initial visit to the city. And then we got to bring the rest of the characters yep. in and the rest of the players and introduce them to the city. It was very enjoyable to watch them all go like, oh, I'm going to go shop over here. And oh, I'm going to go get some of this goat meat. And I'm going to, you know, sample the wares and stuff. Now, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is, is setting creation. Yeah. But it's all built on top of the fact that we had these discussions about who these people were and where they came from, yep. the events that led them to this point. Like we built it all off of the lore of the setting, which is the discussion I was having in the Slack room in the RPG talk. By the way, if you want to join our Slack room, it's like uh, you have to just go to the Patreon and, and throw in a couple bucks a month and you can have part of that conversation too. It's like, it's a good time. I try to get in there at yeah. least once, a, once yeah. a week to talk about whatever we're talking about on the episodes. I gotta uh, say what I liked about part of the way you set that up, because I, I was lucky enough to come here just as they were getting started. So I sat in the corner eating dinner while they were setting up this thing was uh, you also had a visual representation on the table of the city where you had, paper, was it papers or cards? It was just, it was just with, index cards. Index cards with notes, which gave just kind of an overview, like here's the bazaar, here's this, here's that. Sometimes just a card with a thing on it, not describing what it is yet, which gave both Bob when he first went there and then us as the players a chance to look at, that's something we want to go investigate. And sometimes when we went there, you asked us a couple of questions and had us create part of the lore. Mm-hmm. Also, when we were going through town meeting things, so when we would ask a question like, so what kind of scarves do they have? What kind of clothing do they have? And one of the things that came out of that- I want to be, I want to be very careful. There's a difference between lore and setting to me. Yeah. So setting is the stuff that's there. Yeah. Lore is the reason that it's there. I'm getting to that because that's okay. the thing that came up, which was that something that 
the other three players of us hadn't thought about that I think that you and you and Bob had discussed was that because they were warm blooded mm-hmm. that a lot of their clothing wasn't designed yeah. for the cold temperatures we were encountering, which was a setting thing that also gave us a lot of insight into them and their motivations, their society and so on. And also then again, after you set that up, gave us direction for other questions we could ask, ways we could interact with people and what we expected to see. All of that, while that was both setting and lore, mm-hmm. did a really good job of showing us what we were going to be seeing as we talked to people. And it just gave us something to work off of. We were talking about commerce a little bit before, yeah. which they're, they're a pretty social society. Mm-hmm. They share a lot of things. They don't, they have economics, but like, it's like we set a price because it's the right price, not because we're trying to price yes. somebody. This isn't, this isn't capital. The value of this product is pretty much X. Yeah. So yeah. when I go to have a transaction with you, you're going to give me X. And I'm going to say, okay, here's your product. And that's the end of it. Yeah. There's no haggling. There's yeah. no, oh, that price is too high. And I, oh, no, that's fair. You know, they're very straightforward and they don't quibble over those kind of things. And it's because they're a self-reliant society. Like they exist in this, in this place by themselves for so long that any kind of like infighting like that or like mm-hmm. arguing or haggling, one, it's inefficient. That gets people killed, mm-hmm. especially the, with the way that their lives have been. And two, they're like a giant 20,000 person family, essentially. Like that's how these people operate because that's how their society evolved because they didn't have anybody to rely on but themselves because everybody looks at them poorly. That's the lore part of why that society is like that. So that's, that's the thing that I like to base a lot of my, uh, a lot of the stuff in the setting on is like, I always ask that question, like, why did it get here? Because that's the lore part. And to to flip that back to one of the points, the whole concept of player created lore, Mm -hmm. I love having an opportunity to inject some of that stuff into a game mm-hmm. from the player side of the, of the thing. The investment, don't underestimate as a GM, the investment that a player will get from being able to create a piece of that lore for your setting, because it, it really gives you that, like I helped put this together. When they create something like that, most likely it's going to be something that interests them. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be some obscure thing that like they don't care about. It's going to be something that interests them in some way or connects to their character in some way Mm -hmm. that they find interesting. So that goes a long way. So it was like eight sessions before I got there. And as a GM, like you have to, if the player wants to invest that way, in order to keep it relevant and and pertinent, like you have to put it in the game, which is why I knew we weren't going to get there for a while. So I had to figure out some way to go about that. So it was the letters, Mm -hmm. it was the impending doom that was coming. It was the, uh, the idea that you wanted to build a, um, an embassy, embassy, thank you. Yeah. Embassy in Kingshaven, the capital city of the of the the Northern Empire. I had to really like work at it to make sure that Alvar remained a relevant part, that people knew it was coming, mm-hmm. that I seeded it, seeded it, that I foreshadowed you did a nice it. Nice job of it. Yeah, like because it, it was important to you. Because mm-hmm. I, I remember I asked him like, I got no idea for this. Do you yeah. want to build it? That's what I said. Like mm-hmm. I don't have any idea right now. I could come up with something, but what do you got? And you did. You, yeah. you brought it, and I was like, all right, cool. That's all I needed. I just need something to build off of. And then. We have what brought us there as a group, which was this whole the crosswater adventuring company. This whole <laughs> this whole campaign is based on the fact that our party belongs to this adventuring company that gets called in to handle problems. And we've been dealing with the legacy that gets mentioned as the Archmage's legacy is that there's a lot of things in the past that are coming to the forefront. One of them being that there's this magical something out there that is creating a chimeric entities. We're constantly encountering creatures and things that have additional abilities. And we'd heard about some problems that the people of Elvar were having with some new dwarves and some other monsters. And when we get there, we begin to discover that the same villain that we've been chasing back in the main town, back in Kingshaven, where you can get Kingshaven bacon, crunchy, crunchy, is also somehow related, if not completely behind 
what's going on here in town. That's not confirmed. That's not confirmed yet, but that's, that's our a, assumption. That is, a, that, is a, that is definitely an assumption. There that is are a, huge similarities there are. between the, the, the creatures that we've encountered in Elvar and what we've been encountering. Not quite as out there as the chimeric stuff that the we've been hitting in King's weird. I think there's a, I, I think there's a connection. But I, I believe there's a connection, yes. too. I, I'm but I'll tell you what, the play, we, we were immediately invested in it. Like, there was no uh-huh. question over whose side we were going to be on and uh, hmm. what we were going to do. Last week, when we talked about Chris's, the ogres with the hard armor that was the, slowly the breaking The onyx down. armor, yeah. Yep. The onyx skin, essentially. That was one of the things that we encountered there. And so it becomes another part of it because now, once again, at least I'm assuming... The, the lore of the world is coming back full circle to bring us back into the plot from there. And if it is not a coincidence, which I don't think it is. Players don't believe in coincidence. Exactly. That's true. Exactly. <laughs> it actually makes sense. And that's the other part of it is that it makes sense that this would be part of the whole um, it, it would. attack. It would make total sense. Those are all the things that come out of it. And uh, it does make this game something that we all get invested in. Is there anything like else it. anybody wants to say about lore? I think that's a pretty good, yeah. pretty good wrap up yeah, for I that. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good, uh, good way to wrap that one up. All right, well, let's move on to the conversation corner. That's always a fun thing to do, right? Yeah. Bob, why don't you give me your one thing? Yeah, so my one thing for this week, I'm rereading a book that I have read multiple times. I decided to dig back into the archives. I am reading a book by Tim Powers called On Stranger Tides. Now, that may sound familiar to you because it was the name of the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Yeah. Okay. And the reason it was the name of the, the title of the fifth Pirates of the Caribbean movie is because they bought the rights to the name from Tim Powers. All they wanted was the name. They didn't give a shit about his book. That's unfortunate. Okay. And I was very upset because I would have loved to have seen somebody make a movie based on his book because mm-hmm. it's a kick-ass book. You do love some Tim Powers. I do love some Tim Powers. And this particular book just happens to be the first book by Tim Powers that I ever read. He wrote this book. It's about, you know, uh, pirates in the Caribbean and a character that gets kind of thrust into this stuff unwillingly. And it's just a fun, entertaining book with a lot of really deep lore. Look how that fit in. Nice. One of the hallmarks of Tim Powers writing is that he will take a historical period or an event and he will do the research and he will dig in and find out all of the relevant details. And then he will weave a plot through it. So he went through and he did a ton of research on the whole piratical era uh, in, in that time frame. And I, the I age of sail. The age of sail, the, the whole, you know, like logistical pieces of, of how all of it works and the, the conflict between, you know, the, the Royal Navy and the pirates and all that stuff. He did all of that. Um, and he weaves this great story together. His, his magic, uh, the, the way he presents voodoo magic in the setting is really cool. It's a lot of fun. And I enjoy the hell out of it. And that book got me to fall down the Tim Powers rabbit hole. As far as I know, I have read everything that he has written. You were a big Tim Powers fan. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the stuff has been um, special edition, what what they call chapbooks mm-hmm. that are like. They're gorgeous. So they're, you're talking about the gorgeous, gorgeous books. Small, the size of, of like, a, like a Kindle maybe or smaller that are like that thick hardbound that costs like 35, 45 bucks Mm -hmm. for a, for a short story. That's like, I don't know how many, how many pages or how many words, but like not definitely not novel length. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, I have to have this (laughs) novellas and I have to read this. You can call them novellas. Yes. Yes. So I have bought a bunch of those. I I went and I hunted down a bunch of his old paperbacks, his old science fiction that he wrote when he was, when he was just getting started. Like, so long story short on stranger times, great book, loved it. Rereading it now. And, uh, and I'm probably going to grab one of his other ones 
and reread that too next before I jump into something new again. But yeah, that just uh, love his work, love that book. So I felt it was time to dig it out of the archives again. Besides that, we had our NBA game on Sunday, which was fun. Still kind of keeping up with all of the, the different shows that are going on right now, watching Ms. Marvel, looking forward to the finale tomorrow. The Owl House. Thank you, Senda, for beating that through my head. Um, that's fun. I'm behind on the Hardy Boys. I haven't watched an episode. Oh, man. Ever. I kind of watched that new season. I love the first season of the Hardy Boys. It was so. a lot of fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I've read, I've read like 100 Hardy Boy books. Yeah. So. And it's it's a little different twist on them. Mm-hmm. And the, the period, the time period, I've mentioned this before. I don't want to go too deep on this, but the period feels like it's roughly 90s-ish. It does. Some elements feel more like 70s, early 80s. Uh-huh. It's, it's playing like, around with it. Yeah, yeah, they're playing around with that a lot. And so there's a lot of like, there's no cell phones, pay phones and stuff like that. So that's cool. And and that, you know, mystery stuff. I made, us, I made us bad at this part of the one. Everything <laughs> else is my fault. Yeah. Hardy boys, watch it. And I think for now, that's, that's all off the top of my head that I can think of. So Jerry, what's your one thing? My one thing, uh, we had movie night at Bob's house this Friday and we watched a movie called RRR, which is short for Rise, Roar, Revolt. It is a Hollywood action feature and it's like three hours and 15 minutes long. It is over the top action. It's, it's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon level of over the top action. And it is the fictionalized story of two real life people from one of the revolutions against the British in India. And what would happen if they had met each other and happened to actually be superheroes at the same time, basically? (laughs) I mean, essentially, I mean, you're talking, there's action, there's drama, there's romance, there's huge character building, there's bromance, there's betrayal. Uh, If you watch the trailer, basically uh, one person is coming to the city to find the governor played by Ray Stevenson and rescue a little girl. And the other person is basically the super cop who's been hired to stop him. And they meet without knowing each other and become best friends, but they both also have a deep secret. (gasps) So there's betrayal, confrontation, action. There are three musical numbers in it. Yeah. All right. That all are plot relevant and make sense within the plot. Like, it's not like, oh, this is just all of a sudden they break into song and dance. Uh, One is a song that happens later in the thing where it's an inspirational song. One is a song that makes sense in the plot. And the last one happens after the credits where it's just your typical Bollywood, Tollywood sing and dance thing. You get to see swords and guns and knives and martial arts and people using um, motorcycles as melee weapons and <laughs> um, and animals and just there's a couple of moments in this thing where we're just like what the fuck did um, that just happen and the thing is every time it happens you're like that makes perfect sense and there's stuff that happens in the third hour of the movie that you're like they set this up in the first half hour like this is a callback to something earlier they did a lot of great character building the movie keeps building there are several points in the movie there's one point where they've had this dramatic thing and this big romance thing and character building and then a huge climactic action sequence. It would be the kind of thing you'd see at the end of a movie. And we're like, that was amazing. And we're like, there's two hours left in this thing. What the <laughs> hell are they going to do next? And they just keep wrapping it up. It's good. But the story beats are there also. Yeah. It's not just action, 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 action. It's not just drama, 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 drama. They have high beats, low beats, yeah. character. I, action, I, drama, action, drama, Chris, action, drama. Chris, I think you would oh, super yes. enjoy this. No, I think gonna watch it. Uh, it is storytelling. I'll be watching it's, it. It's, it's just ridiculously good. And we had a good time with it. We got to the end of it. We were just like, what the hell? It was amazing. So that was, that was my one thing was, it was a lot of fun. Everything else, 
Strange New Worlds finale was last week. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Great show. Great finale for the season. That's all I'm going to say. Miss Marvel's been amazing. Um, I can't wait to see how they wrap it up. I got back into watching uh, Harley Quinn on HBO Max. This season's coming. Um, I'm still in the middle of season two. It is over-the-top fun and just ridiculous fun. Can't and season three. loves to poke fun at the Disney Universe. Bob and I have been playing more Valheim. We've gotten to the next kind of stage of what we're doing and basically causing trouble. And there's been a lot of, you know... That would be stupid. Let's try it. And uh, though not quite as stupid as let's swim across that gap, Chris. Whatever. <laughs> and of course, we played Knights Black Agents, which is a lot of fun with Phil. It was fun. So that's my thing. Chris, what's your one thing? I'm, I'm going to do everything else first because okay. I'll do that. I've been playing a game called The Rising. That's pretty fun. You're a vampire, a black hat in a, in a build and survive like Valheim. Played about eight hours of that. Cool. Miss Marvel episode five was only okay. I wanted it to be better than it was, and I was sad about it. That's okay, though. I'm sure episode six will be fine. That show's amazing, though, so it's fine. I went to a family reunion this past weekend. I engaged in a water balloon toss with my lovely partner, and for the first time ever, I was eliminated in the first round because I threw her the balloon, and she dropped it from like three feet away. I could have handed it to her, and she still dropped it. Okay, done with that. (laughs) Um, We had a breakfast at a really quality diner in a nice little town. I won't be able to do this stuff for much longer because there's like a COVID spike. So it's nice to be able to go do it. I played in a cornhole tournament, destroyed my father-in-law. Cornholio! Yep. Uh, played some Splendor, <laughs> got crushed. And I've been playing a lot of a game called Pokemon Unite, which is a, a Pokemon MOBA, a multi-person online battle arena. Really fun, fun game. The game's no, only last 10 minutes, so it's great yes. to just get in and get out. Uh, my one thing was while I was on this trip was a place called the Dragonfly Tea Shop. So we went to this place called the Dragonfly Tea Shop in this little town that we were in. And it was an actual tea shop where we sat down with teacups, similar to the ones that I have on the wall in this room, which you can't see. I'll maybe take a picture later. And they served pots of tea. And while we were there, there was some sort of party going on. And there was a bunch of people and young girls, like 11, 12, 13 years old, that came in like, tea party dress type thing. So it was funny because we're sitting there in our blue family reunion t-shirts and our shorts. And there was like all these people dressed very nicely. But I like tea. Jen and Bridget love tea. And uh, it was lovely. And I had a s'mores scone. Mm, okay. It was delicious. <sighs> so good. But it was called the Dragonfly Tea Shop. I liked the logo. I liked the tea that they had. I've never actually sat in a tea shop like that before. Uh, I never used the filter that they had. So it was loose leaf tea in the teapot. And they gave you... um it's a strainer that sits on top of your teacup. So mm-hmm. you pour the tea through the mm-hmm. through the strainer and it catches the tea leaves. I've never seen I don't I don't own one of those. We have a lot of tea paraphernalia in our house and I don't have one of those. I need to get one. You will, what, yeah. what what town was the Dragonfly Tea Shop in? I can't remember the name of it. I wish I could. Whereabouts was it? We were like, in Ohio. Okay. I don't really know where. I just went on the trip. I took no responsibility for anything on this one. I just <laughs> left. I just got in the car and drove. Uh, but that's my one thing. It was great. And Bob's looking it up right now. Yes. All right. But while he's looking that up, why don't we do some uh, Patreon shout outs? I'll do that while you're doing that. Okay, Bob? Sure. Cool. Go ahead. So thank you so much for being our patrons. We greatly appreciate the money that you give us every month. It really does help keep the lights on and keep us doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, patrons, JT Evans, Jared Rasher, the review gnome, Jen Pixelscapes Gagney. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, Jim Fitzpatrick, Joseph Peralta, Kathleen Halperin, uh, Michael Draper, my Brett Ninjabi and the Rainmaker. Yeah. Thank you so much for being our patrons. Did you figure it out yet? I did. It's the Dragonfly Tea Room and Gift Shop in Fulton, Ohio. Yeah, that's where we were. Fulton, Fulton Ohio. Ohio. Yep. Bob, if you would like to get to the closing for us. I would love to get to the closing after I just turned my phone back off. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course that happened. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening. Yeah, If you enjoyed this podcast, you can get more content through our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash misdirectedmark, where we release videos on Tuesdays along with other content on our Patreon. Plus, there's shorts that pop up over the week and other things that may pop up over the week on the YouTube channel. 
And if you enjoyed this podcast, take a listen to some of the other shows in the Misdirector Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek, Mastering Dungeons, Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, Panda's Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Bonus Experience, and the amazing back episodes of She's a Super Geek. You can and should also check out our sibling podcast, Tabletop Bellhop, The Knights of the Night, and the all-new GM Mastermind. Love that show. It's really fun. Uh, yeah. Sunday was on it, talking mm-hmm. about Session Zero. And Phil will be on with, soon as well. With, uh, with Kimmy from uh, Happy Jacks. Ah. There was somebody else on there. I can't. Remember. I think Jared was on there too with that, mm-hmm. on that episode. Yeah, Jared Rasher, the the review note, and Sean. I mean, who doesn't love Sean? Yeah, yeah guys, absolutely. Right? You can then leave us some feedback. You can reach us directly using old, weird, archaic email, which is still really relevant. Yes. <laughs> MMP yep. at misdirectedmark.com. and you can go to the Twitters. Uh, I'm at misdirect. Well, no, I'm not at misdirectedmark, but you can go to at misdirectedmark. He's Robert M. Everson sitting across from me. To the right of me is GM Gerrymander. A DNA Phil is sitting on a toilet somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and I am the Light One Hundred and One. <laughs> Remember that Patreon we mentioned earlier? If you want to support us and other shows from Misdirected Mark Productions, you can do that at patreon.com slash MMP. Your patronage will get you access to the after show, our show notes, the Bamboo Lounge podcast, and other special releases. Which we don't have any examples of that right now. Not at the moment. Not at the moment. But when we do, we'll let you know. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.